We have enormous potential to grow filmed entertainment in this country. October last year. Wow, so it's been more than a full year. How are you guys coping? COVID has literally been the worst case scenario. <laughs> um, the Dish. Hey, welcome to the first episode of The Dish, the first podcast by UTS Central News. And it's the place where we dish out the facts, the stories, and the news that you'll actually care about. I'm Alec, and I'm joined by Kate and Dylan, and we're going to be your hosts for this first episode. So this episode, we'll be talking about the state of the performing arts in Australia as the sector recovers from the shutdowns caused by COVID-19. Yeah, and we are seeing some easing of restrictions. I mean, New South Wales has 75% capacity at indoor theatres now, 100% at outdoor ones. But experiencing the arts and performance is still going to be different and definitely distanced. Guys, and the performing arts industry is still recovering from like COVID-19 impacts and film sets are only, again, restarting production in recent months. So with that, we're going to be chatting with three guests from the industry to talk about their experiences about, well, how tough this year's been. So Dylan and Kate, um, let's get into it. Let's go. Sounds good. So our first guest on The Dish is Cherie Nowlin. She's a television and film director who's worked across Australia, the US, Canada and New Zealand. Her first feature film starred Aussie legend Kate Blanchett and is currently directing multiple episodes of Clickbait in Melbourne, a Netflix TV show set to release next year. Cherie, thanks for coming on The Dish. So you're in Melbourne right now filming Clickbait. Now, what's some of the challenges you guys are facing keeping the set COVID safe? It actually isn't that difficult, funnily enough. Once we got the rules, um, it was fine. I mean, we have to all get a temperature check and a wristband when we check in. We have pods that we're meant to um, stick to. Um, we have to have a test every week, which um, is fine because the test we're using is a kind of a less invasive, shorter swab. So it's not as bad as the the sort of one that tends to, I mean, it hurts a little bit. It's not terrible, but I mean, I have to work with a mask. Obviously I'm in Melbourne, so everyone's wearing masks anyway. And I also have to have goggles and visors. So I suppose to some extent, the connection with actors is a little weirder. And sometimes it's, it's harder to, for them to hear what I have to say. And sometimes, but, but other than that, it's pretty, we've adjusted very quickly. What about if you were filming, say, back in the US where you do a lot of your work? If we, I was doing this in another city, you know, it would be like Los Angeles, for example, I imagine it would be a lot more stressful. Certainly the American, the, the American cast were very, very sensitive about, you know, the, the, the distance and keeping everyone away because they've come from such a heightened environment. So you've spent a lot of your career working in the US, but now you've come back to Australia because of the COVID-19 pandemic and lockdown. I mean, what do you think is going to happen to a lot of these productions in the US? Are they going to be moving elsewhere, maybe potentially coming to Australia? Because it looks like the situation over there is just getting a lot worse with current infection rates. I, I'd like to think so. I think it's an enormous opportunity for Australia to steal some business from Canada in particular. I mean, more than $4 billion worth of production goes to Canada. And a lot of production, an enormous amount goes to New Zealand and, and, and historically also South Africa. 
It's funny though, Australia, the Americans have a little bit of a mental block when it comes to Australia. For some reason, they think it's further away than New Zealand. New Zealand such a, is a fabulous country and I love working there. It's very small though. We have much greater space um, to, to grow the business here in terms of facilita facilitating international production and growing local production. I mean, it's wide open. We are, I mean, I'm working at Docklands, which is a fantastic facility. They're adding stages. They're building stages on the Gold Coast, Byron Bay, Brisbane. Um, and uh, yeah, I think, I mean, I would like to see Australia, state governments, federal governments, producers going out there and much more aggressively bidding to bring productions here because we can easily double any city, in, particularly Melbourne, such a versatile city, and, um, and obviously anything that's international in story where Australia is playing itself, you're not having to double it for another place, um, that should also be happening. We have enormous potential to grow filmed entertainment in this country. And, you know, I've worked a lot, over, I've worked all over the US, I've worked in Canada and, and New Zealand and, and uh, it's frustrating for me. So you've just mentioned state and federal governments just then. A lot of the time they're being criticised for their lack of offering incentives or trying to get productions to come over here. What do you think they should be doing to try and garner more business for the Australian film and television industry? We have to do a good job of selling it to them because they do have to offer tax offset offsets that they, you know, they have to give to get. And, but what they do get is tremendous employment and training of people. So in Canada, for example, if I'm working in Vancouver, about 20% of the crew will be young Australian people who've gone there to get jobs and learn their craft. So you, you, yes, you have to give to get, but it's well worth it in terms of what you're creating for the future. And just also because so much, so much is done, our work, say in the visual effects arena, is done remotely anyway. You know, we have fantastic Oscar-nominated visual effects companies in Australia, all over Australia. One of the best is in South Australia, for example, Rising Sun. So that's, that's a lot of business. We're talking, as I said, I've just dropped that number, four billion. I think it's, it's actually, that's old, an old number. $4 billion worth of, of business it's, is in Canada. I mean, we should be taking a piece of that. But don't you think it's difficult for governments to prioritise this? I mean, we're in extreme debt because of the COVID-19 pandemic. And like, what sort of incentives do they have to invest in this? I think Scott Morrison was on to it and he realised that there would be a huge opportunity for us at the outset. And I think I think he lowered one of the location offsets, but then upped the t TV one. So I think at 30% offset just there. I think we just, he just has to realize how much work employment it generates and, and be interested outside what we're traditionally, our economy um, chugs along on, which is obviously resources. And I'd love to think that you know, that could be a potential silver lining to change the way we think about what is Australia good at Clearly, we are very good at technical things, creative. Yeah, like storytelling. You know, and storytelling. And we've always punched way above our weight in, in those fields. And we're a sustainable business. Yeah, yeah. Such an amazing insight into what's happening right now, especially since you're filming in Melbourne at the moment. Hey, thanks so much, Sheree, for joining us on The Dish. I'm speaking with Rio Sprott, guitarist and vocalist for alternative punk rock band A Swift Farewell, who recently played their first show for the year. Hey, Rio, how are you? Good, and yourself? Good, thanks. So, I understand you guys played one of your first live shows the other night. How did it go? 
It went really well, thank you. It was nice to play a show since COVID started, but it was very different, especially when people couldn't move around, everyone was just seated down. When was the last time a Swift Farewell played a show? October last year. Wow, so it's been more than a full year. Before COVID hit, we were actually planning to do a release show because we just released our debut EP. And then COVID happened, so everything was like, hold on, what's going on? If this, if this is going ahead or not? And yeah, it's been a year because of that. And how did you guys get involved with Great Southern Nights? Fangs messaged us and just asked if we wanted to play a show with them and you know, it's been so long, so we jumped on that opportunity and just said yes without even thinking about it. <laughs> Has it been a moment where the music community has rallied around each other and you guys feel supported by other bands and things like that? Yeah, 100%. The music industry really took a huge toll when COVID hit. Even now, with limited seats, it's just so sad that, you know, like a, our venue that we played was 500 people capacity and it could only fit half, and even when we were Forming, it was like wow it's it, even if it was a full house it still felt empty still yeah i can imagine especially you know when you're playing punk rock music and you want the crowd up on their feet singing along i'm sure they're still singing along though oh yeah 100 still singing along but you know like not moving around or jumping up and down what was it like when you guys first saw crowds returning to sporting events and you know you guys knew that you hadn't announced any live shows you didn't know the restrictions were going to lift on live music venues how was it with that experience i understand sporting's a huge culture thing in australia but it's just funny because like during all the emergencies like bushfire the drought the entertainment business not saying sport isn't entertainment but like you know the arts and entertainment they rally to come together to support the communities to donate sell their merch but make zero profit to give to the um, people who are affected drastically by it it's just crazy how like you know sports is the priority amongst anything else in the arts industry when literally when things go wrong the art industry comes up and rally together they host a show and they donate all their profits to it and yet when COVID happened they're like, yep, yeah, we'll get sports on and shows to be confirmed. Yeah, I'm sure it was a disappointing and kind of real struggle to sit there and wait, like, for that announcement. Exactly. Like, I understand things are in stages, but I feel like the sports industry shouldn't be the huge priority. Like, because I was speaking to a friend, he's in finance, and he said, look, at the end of the day, they need to prioritise what will bring money back to, you know, the country. And that's sporting sales, which I'm like, okay, fail, but still a bit messed up, but it is what it is, I guess. Yeah, I think that is true. There's a lot of focus on the economic impact of different sectors, but obviously, like you said, there's a huge amount of charity in the arts community, but also the fact that people in the arts, you guys need work <laughs> to, to fund your lives, so... I'm sure that's been really difficult. How the arts industry makes profits, you know, through shows, through selling merch, through meeting greets and stuff like that. And it, regardless, like even if we were able to release music, you only get a small commission out of it through your streaming services. And the way that you make money is through shows. And if you cut that out, what else can we do? And if we can't meet people, we can't really sell anything because we can't go out and purchase items to make shirts or even sh clothing brands that prints our merch. 
they're shut because they can't do anything because their office is not COVID safe. So they can't do anything with the factories and stuff like that. So what's the roadmap looking like now? Where What does it look like for the band in 2021? From what I saw online, it looks like pretty much November, end of November, that's it for live music. Because um, a lot of bands that I follow, they're like, yeah, this is the last show for 2020. And when I was speaking to some bands I met in person, they're pretty much saying, yeah, this is it. This is what we're doing for 2020. And next year we'll do more shows and try and book bigger venues. Because at the end of the day, like, you know, you play, for example, Burdekin, if it's a sold-out show, 75 people, that fills up the whole venue. And, you know, that's people standing, not sitting down. And because they cut the venue capacity by half and sit-down event, they can't sell much tickets. Therefore, ticket price skyrockets. But from what I can hear and understand um, from people in the scene, they're booking bigger venues to be able to hold uh, more people to the show just because... You know, how they're compensating for it is like, yep, we're playing a show, one show at this time, and on the same night, two hours later, we're playing another show, just to be able to meet the demands of the people, of the market, I should say. Because at the end of the day, everyone's been locked down for how many months, and no entertainment except from the telly and sports. Everyone wants live music. Tickets sell out quite fast, and like, if you miss out, you miss out. And even then, the bands, like ourselves, like, yeah, cool, we sold our show, but... It's half the capacities. I think 2021 is going to be an interesting year, depending on what happens with COVID and restrictions easing up. Because I think the first half will be, we'll get bombarded with shows as long as they comply with COVID rules. But yeah, that's how I see it. I certainly hope, as everyone does, that, you know, hopefully we'll have a vaccine or we'll be able to have a Australia COVID safe bubble. And I'm sure you know, live music will be a important part of the entertainment setting in 2021. Thanks so much for chatting with me today. No worries. You have a great day. And on the topic of live music, if there's one thing we're all wondering, it's how are you guys coping? COVID has literally been the worst case scenario. (laughs) This is Lucy Joseph, Projects and Engagement Manager at Live Music Office. For... Uh, the, the whole music industry, you know, across um, um, on a global level, um, certainly um, on a national level, and and particularly for New South Wales, we were just kind of seeing the um, light at the end of the tunnel in terms of the, um, uh, the lifting of the lockout laws in in December last year, and so um, 2020 was was a um, uh, out of the frying pan and into the fire kind of situation um, for for the music industry. You know, it's it's an industry that's literally built on the attendance of patrons. And so when there's no patrons, there's no events, um, there's no ticket sales, there's no income for musicians and bar staff and roadies and managers and bookers. Um, and then, you know, all of the kind of ancillary um, industries that, that rely on that in terms of um, hospitality and transport and tourism, those kind of sectors all um, all are affected as well. Yeah, and going through the year, what's it been like, I guess, trying to navigate the challenges of COVID? Uh, and uh, how do you view how you've been supported by, I guess, the government as well? The first few months of lockdown um, for the music industry and like the broader performance industry as well, um, there was a lot of really intense um, advocacy going on um, to government. Uh, there had to be a really quick 
um, gathering of information, um, feedback uh, from from the industry to, to, to get a measure of just um, how uh, how much COVID was was impacting the industry in terms of you know lost income. So you know, for example, you know within the space of February to April, there was three hundred and seventy million dollars lost across the music industry um, in Australia, which is which is enormous in such a short period of time. And so and so yeah, we had to quickly act to to give all of that kind of information and feedback to government so that they could then quickly respond, you know, with with relief packages. Yeah, it's definitely been a big hustle for you guys. Can I ask if there's been any silver linings looking back on the year? Um, particularly for New South Wales, actually, I think the most exciting thing that's happened um, in this state is that New South Wales Parliament just um, over the last couple of weeks has passed this package of reforms um, to uh, liquor laws, um, planning laws and uh, local government laws that have cut out a huge amount of red tape that's been in existence for years and years, but it's now made it far, far easier for particularly um, small to medium live music um, activations to happen. They, you know, they include things like um, allowing uh, local governments to establish cultural and entertainment precincts um, that, that help foster more cultural activity. Um, it, there's, there's now you know, a more streamlined process to enable the creation of small bars and live music and small art spaces, which, um, which, is, which is much needed after you know, five years of, um, of lockout laws and, and now you know, the, the impacts of, of, um, of COVID in 2020. Yeah, and I think that's really interesting. I mean, um, Live Music Office and a bunch of different organisations have been campaigning against lockout law restrictions for years now. And it's interesting how COVID has exacerbated the problem to the point where the government has had to step in. Yeah, COVID has really uh, leveled the playing field in terms of in terms of demonstrating just how important and fundamental um, live music and more broadly the cultural industries are to to um, the the state and certainly the national economy. Um, you know they're multi billion dollar industries, and as soon as they don't exist, um, it has this enormous flow on effect for the rest of the economy. And 2020 has really been the only time that. Uh, you know, that, that's um, been made most evident. Mm, yeah, and I think that's interesting as well. I mean, uh, you know, a year ago we had just uh, festivals constantly and, and um, so many massive gigs that, that could, you know, generate that income. But now I guess we're focalising on the smaller gig aspect because that's what we can facilitate in the COVID environment. And yeah. I guess, yeah, it's a, a maybe a new way of 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 working the model and um, economy wise. Yeah, certainly. You know, uh, one of the other silver linings to come out of this year is that, um, particularly at the local level, um, uh, from the local government perspective, uh, there's been this renewed sense of value in um, in grassroots uh, live music scenes. Um, there's you know, there's always been a need for um, small to medium performance spaces. Uh, for local musicians to access, and um, you know, certainly with, with the program um, that I run in the live and uh, the live and local program at the Live Music Office, um, our focus is on um, uh, using this program as as a recovery vehicle um, to provide employment for local musicians, to activate more small to medium um, uh, venues, and to work with local government around uh, you know around 
shaping um, their own, you know, strategic plans that support live music. So, uh, you know, that's certainly increased um, in, in light of the impacts of COVID. So what do you guys think of what next year will be like? Look, I, I really hope that capacity limits are going to be lifted. Yeah, that's my thing. Like, I haven't been to any gigs recently and I just, like, can't really picture what it would be like to just sit in a chair <laughs> when, like, something really amped up is playing or something. Like, it's just weird enough to go to the pub and sort of be like, oh, there's a good song, but I can't get up and dance with my friends because we just got to stay seated. Yeah, exactly. I mean, I can tell you, as a person who doesn't like being thrown around in, like, a mosh pit, it was quite nice to be able to sit on my bum and like just enjoy the show but after a while like a lot of the venues don't have seating that's like catered to like sitting down for like two hours to watch a show well it's still and, it, and we always adapt like i mean uh, when i was talking to sheree she basically was like on film sets there they're just adapting to what the changes are and we can still create content and we're seeing that we're seeing so much more like netflix series being created under these covid series covid restrictions and like people starting up YouTube channels or creating their own content. Like, it's mm. doable. Well, that's the thing as well. Like, uh, you know, um, it, online now is so saturated. Like, everybody's pushing things online. And so we are spoiled for choice with stuff that we can watch, listen to. Including this podcast. So please listen. <laughs> <laughs> so true. But, yeah, is there going to come a point? Like, I was sort of feeling that way last year already. Like, oh, there's so much that I need to listen to and haven't been able to get to yet. Now it's like you know, this is the only way and will that mean people will tune out or and then just become more desperate for live things. But I guess either way, you're going to have to get used to the fact that if you go live, it's not going to be the same as what it was. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I think that's the end of our episode, guys. We did it. First episode down. So for those of you listening, if you like this episode, subscribe to The Dish and keep up to date with the facts, the stories and the news that you actually care about. See you later. See ya. See ya. The Dish.